Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Lighthouse instructor Court McMeal is a force to be reckoned with. He's sharp, he's energetic, and he's a darn good writer. On December 11th, 2010, he joined us for our Writer's Buzz series to talk about and read from his first novel, Short. Welcome, everybody, to um, the final Lighthouse Writer's Buzz of the year. Um, it's great to see you all here. It's great to see that you're all drinking. Because the, one of the main themes of the book, if you don't know, is drinking. My name is Mike Henry. For those of you who don't know me, who doesn't know me? There's a few of you. A few new faces. Oh, come on. Um, I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop, so thanks for coming. Um, it's my pleasure to... Um, I'm, I'm going to um, ask Court a couple of questions tonight. Like, you know, when was the French Revolution, stuff like that. We'll see. I'm going to stump him. I'm very excited about that. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to say thanks for coming. Thanks for supporting Lighthouse Writers Workshop. And... Um, I just need to, uh, well, I need to thank 910 Arts for hosting us, of course. Thanks, 910 Arts. Wherever you are, as if you're a real thing. Yeah. Um, thanks to Lynn uh, Clark for taking pictures. Woo! All right, come on, come on. <laughs> All right, and um, so I'm going to introduce Nick Arvin, who's going to introduce Court. Got that? So um, Nick Arvin's right there. He's right behind me. He's, he's my doppelganger. Um, Nick is one of our uh, faculty members, and I'm proud to call him a good friend. He's a um, fantastic writer, one of those creepy good writers who just knows how to tell a good story. Um, Articles of War uh, was his last novel, which was chosen to be One Book, One Denver. Did you all read it? I'm sure you all did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow, that was really... Um, anyway, so... Um, and I'm sure all of you, as John Hickenlooper said, you were standing at the gas station talking about it to somebody else who was getting gas. That's sort of his standard speech about one book, one Denver. I guess I was the only one who saw that press conference. Okay, so, um, and he has a, a book coming out called um, The Reconstructionist, which is out in the UK, right? The, um, the U.S. publishers made him rewrite the book after it got published in the U.K., so, he's, so he has two novels out. They're both called The Reconstructionist, uh, which I think is a fantastic title. And I, I, I like it so much, I'm going to um, steal it. And I'm going to retitle. I've been working on a memoir, in case you're wondering. And I'm going to retitle it, and I'm going to call it The, um, uh, the Nerdist. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that laugh. I really appreciate it. That's the last of my attempt at bad jokes. So please welcome Nick Arvin. So I'm going to praise Court, but before I do that, I'm going to embarrass him. I've, uh, <laughs> I've, uh, I've known Court for a couple years, and uh, um, I consider him a good friend. And so that, that means that I have some stories. Um, the, uh, the other day, Court called me, and, and you could hear immediately in his voice that he was, he was in pain, and he was on some kind of drugs. And he's like, he said, dude, I broke my back. Um, and I might, I might not be able to use my legs. And you, you might notice that he's walking around just fine. <laughs> and um, 
yeah, and you know, he, he said, you know, there's, there, we're, we're gonna, you know, work on it, and um, you know, do some physical rehab and stuff. And the doctor said, you know, I, I might be able to get most of it back, but it might not. And like one leg's really bad, and you, you could hear him. I mean, he was it, at the time he was he was in real pain, and um, and you know, I, I was, I said, you know, what happened? And he said that he um, he had this idea for a, a book about ultimate fighting. And <laughs> so he'd, he'd gone out and found a place in, um, in Denver where they trained for ultimate fighting. And he was training for ultimate fighting, and one of the guys body slammed him, and it threw, it threw the disc out of his back. Um, and I, I said, That's, man, that is sacrificing for your art. And so then we... Um, you know, but you know, I'm hoping for a full recovery. You know, I'll check in. I'll bring you a bottle of whiskey. He's like, oh, I've already got one right here. And so a couple of days later, I call Court back, and you know, I, I said, "How's how's it going with your back?" And he's like, "How'd you know about that?" And I said, <laughs> <laughs> and I said "Well, you called me." <laughs> He told me all about it, um, and uh, and I and so we, we, you know we're talking about his back, and it, it was just it was pretty bad, and, you know. But he was, he was doing the rehab, and it was getting better. It wasn't as bad as it initially seemed it might be, and uh, and so we talk about it for a while, and then and then Court says, yeah, "It's it's hard to believe you could do that swinging a golf club." <laughs> and I said, I said, you, you told me you were ultimate fighting. <laughs> and he said, oh, dude, I'm surprised I didn't tell you I was attacked by ninjas. <laughs> um, the funny thing is that's, that's the kind of thing that happens in Court's novel all the time. Um, and I, I mean this in the kindest possible way, but... Court McMeal is kind of a freak. Um, most writers, like me, for example, are introverts. And then there's Court, who's not. Most writers are tongue-tied, meek, borderline antisocial. And then there's Court, who's not. Most writers go through life having a hard time deciding what they want. Chai or coffee, skim or soy. And then there's Court, who knows what he wants, and it probably has booze in it. I don't really understand how a person like Court becomes a writer. But he's very much a writer. His desk drawers are full of unpublished novels that he's written, and he's incredibly well-read. Ask Court about Conrad or Melville or Tolstoy, and he can talk your ear off. Or ask him about obscure French pulp novels. Or ask him about 19th century British adventure novels, and he can talk your ear off. Short is a great novel because it was written by Court. And it burns with those unusual Court-esque, can I use, can I, Court-esque? Court-esque qualities filtered through a literary mind. In a world of literary novels full of characters who are likable, and carefully constructed scenes in which subtle shifts of emotion are delicately examined. Well, this is something different. Yes, the details are carefully observed. 
Yes, the language is rich and finely wrought. Yes, it brings to life a world that most of us know nothing about. But more importantly, I think, it is full of characters who know exactly what they want and are ready to scheme, lie, cheat, backstab, and whatever else it takes to get it. There are schemes within schemes in this novel, and there are schemes against schemes. There's betrayal, and there are characters doing everything they can think of to destroy each other. It's fun. (laughs) A lot of literary novels are called luminous. This isn't a book that you would call luminous like a lot of other literary novels. (laughs) This is a book that just burns all the way through like an acetylene torch. It's a terrific book. Cord is a terrific writer, and we're lucky to have him here in the Denver literary scene. Thanks. I'm humbled. Coming from I'm humbled. Thanks, man. Uh, Nick is scheming against me because now I have to one-up that performance. That was great, Nick. Wow, you're good. Um... So, Court, how would you think about that? That was pretty good. I, yeah, no, thank you. I was humbled. Nick's a really talented writer, uh, far more so than myself, and to uh, have him say those nice lies was great. <laughs> <laughs> There's a case of whiskey out in the back for you, buddy. <laughs> so, how's your back? It's, uh, yeah, I just played golf this weekend. I'm doing pretty good. Is Thanks. That? Yeah. Oh, okay, good, good. So you can walk? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. All right, okay, good. Okay, so I have some questions. Uh, that, um, can, 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 I, I, can I take the fifth at any moment if I need to? No. Okay. No. No. Why, do you need a lawyer? Uh, no. You might. My, uh, yeah, my wife isn't here, but I heard it's on podcast, so I don't want to say anything too incriminating. We can always edit it out. Okay, cool. Maybe. Okay, so I have a couple questions for you. Um, a few softballs, if that's okay. 1684, right? French Revolution? Is that right? Is that, wasn't that, Is that right? Right? No, not 16. No. 1789. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, 17... oh, yeah. Columbus. Oh, yeah. When was the Tenneth the... <laughs> Court of... Anyways. Okay. So my first question. <clears throat> uh, so, you know, a typical question. How did you know um, that you first wanted to be a writer? Tell us a story and make it make it true, of course. Oh, uh-oh. Yeah. Um, yes, of course, I knew exactly when I wanted to become a writer. I remember the exact moment. Uh, I was nine years old serving martinis at uh, my parents' house. I was a miniature unpaid bartender. Um, actually, this is a true story. Uh, um but no, uh, there was a, a character that used to be on in Boston that would show up to uh, my parents' house at these uh, get-togethers, and his name was Eddie Driscoll. He's about a six-foot-five Irishman, wrote the obituaries for the Boston Globe, and uh, he had one glass eye. Um, and uh, anyways, it was pretty hilarious story in and of itself. Um, he was, you know, basically, a, you know, uh, smoked like a chimney and got into a coughing fit and his eye popped out of his head and, and fell on the floor. And you'd think that's... Is that what he told you? And I, I, I witnessed that. And you would think that that <laughs> is... You saw that happen? His eye flat? flat? Oh, yeah. It, oh. This, this happened. Just you can't... The, the fiction is stranger than fact. Um, but no, uh, um, you would think that that would be enough for a good story. And I think, honestly, to answer your question, no, I, I pick up my, uh, I would say it's more ability to tell tall tales from my mother, because about two days later, 
Um, she was in, uh, she was with a couple of her ladies, uh, hanging out and they were, you know, having some cocktails and I was playing GI Joe's or whatever I was doing. And I was listening to her retell the story of what happened. Only it went like this. Um, Eddie was there with us ladies and, um, I told the hilarious joke. It was so funny that he laughed so hard his eyeball popped out of his head and went into his martini. <laughs> However, not missing a beat, he turned to me, being the most beautiful of the group, and he said, here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> so as, as, as my dad, who's a reserve Midwesterner, always says of my mom's stories, nothing gets lost in the telling. But I think I was nine years old, and um, and it just realized that you know, wow, you can make shit up, and it's even better than the stuff that's that's already you know out there. So that's I think that's the moment I knew that I needed to start writing the stuff down if I was going to remember it. So, and you must include a martini in that. Oh yeah, well you know, and then process yeah, yeah. exactly. That's quite an olive. Oh, oh, thank you. No, I mean the eyeball. Oh, quite, quite an olive. Oh, yeah, a yeah. large, yeah, large size olive. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> being being a being a good Irishman, his his martini must have been half empty though, so it didn't sure, spill yeah. out, probably, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And he probably just kept drinking. The, the physics of did he of, pop it back in? He probably just popped oh, it back yeah, in. Oh, yeah, no. In the, in the actual party, he did. He picked yeah. it up and sure. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. The uh, red red rimmed eyeball. Is your mom from Boston? Um, no, no, she's from DC. No. Uh, Old see. man's from the Midwest. See, I would say that that's sort of a Bostonian trait. Yeah. Tall tales. Yeah, yeah. Full, they must have. Full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for that story. Oh, thank you. So my next question is: um, You have an MFA. Wow, it got really quiet in here. Is that good or bad that he has an MFA? Mm. Boo! No, it's good. My face are good. From Columbia University. Fancy. Isn't that fancy? That's pretty fancy, i got to say. Um, so can you tell us about that experience a little well, bit? I, I didn't put that on the book. I'm so ashamed of it. So that, you know, I didn't put, that's why it's not on the, on the bio. Um, no, you know why it's really not on the bio is I had a very, uh, a very sketchy career as a, a fledgling whatever at uh, MFA in Columbia. I was... Um, I, it's supposed to take a year, I think, to get your master's in writing, which, you know, normal, you know, if you're a mathematician or something, it takes like three years. Writing, it's like, you know, one year. Um, but, uh, no, it took me three. And I remember... My MFA took me three. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we studied so hard, I'm sure. But, but it's yeah. exactly... I, you know, I did a lot of loafing, but my, my dad had the classic quote for that experience there. I kind of apologized to him. Uh, I said, you know, sorry about this whole debate three years, you know, whatever. And he said, son, I'd rather have a drag out than a drop out. So that was kind of, uh, you know, let me, uh, yeah, that's a good Midwestern har har. You know, I had to get that in there. But um, no, I, I, you know what? New York was great because I had a lot of uh, uh, very interesting experiences there outside of the program. Um, one of them was in order to pay for, you know, beer money, I actually had to have a, a job and I worked uh, at a muscle beach type place as a personal fitness trainer and um, you know there was like upscale clients and whatnot but it was really interesting because you had you know um, a bunch of guys that could bench press 500 pounds
pounds, but everyone was getting their masters in something like film or drama or poetry. So it was like uh, it was like a it was it was almost like an artist colony for muscle heads, and um, so that was an interesting crew of uh, people. So that the whole Columbia experience was was worth it, but not for the, uh, the not for the three letters of the degree. That's for sure. Huh? Interesting. So are you glad you went? Um, I'm, I'm glad I finally graduated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was, the, there were odds of that not happening. So, um, And then what did you do after you got the MFA? And when, when did you get your MFA? Um, like uh, 1868, I think. I, yeah, when, uh, when was the French Revolution again? Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. It was before the Sox won the World Series, so, you know. Um, what, what did I, was that question? <laughs> Did I do something oh, after? Uh, yeah, did I do was, anything it after? Specific. Uh, it was. Did you go stri- straight from your MFA into trading? Oh uh, no, I had I had some misadventures. Um, I uh, I guess I tried to combine the um, the whole writing thing with work, and I, I worked in advertising uh, for a little bit. And uh, my advertising career actually started off pretty gloriously. Um, as soon as I, I got to uh, the job, they pigeonholed me in the Miller Beer account, which was just awesome because, you know, you would have to go tastings for the product closet to make sure, you know, whatever. Um, and then and then they I did a good job and they put me on two other accounts, one of which was Imperial Cigarettes and the other one was Carter Wallace's Trojan Condoms. So I pretty much had the Sin product market covered, which was uh, perfect for a while. Then um, then the whole thing sort of I fell apart. I picture for those three. Because after a while, you, you actually have to do work, right? And... Well, so no, um, it, we we actually lost the Miller account, and uh, the other ones fell by the wayside. And I got uh, stuck in. And for those in the room who know me and you know played rugby with me or work on the trading floor with me, uh, those people know that I might not be the biggest fan of uh, you know hygiene products. So I was put on the arid extra dry account. Proceeded to lose my job within two weeks. Wow. Arid extra dry is a deodorant, just so. So it's an anti Right. Yeah, th- exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> correct. And then, and then, so, you, did you get fired from there? Um, yes. <laughs> and, and, and then, what did you do? So, wait, wait. Okay. So, you're fired. You have an MFA. Um, well, then I, I did what every person does when they're young and they're in love and they have no job. I proposed marriage. <laughs> I was immediately rejected, heartily, and then I realized I had to get a real job, and that's how I ended up as a broker in uh, the commodities markets, you know, so. How'd you find that job? Um, well, that's kind of a, uh, basically I was, I had no job and I was playing rugby and I was, um, kind of working up quite a debtor's tab with my teammates of someone who never had any money, but would always go to the bar after the, after practice. Um, and, uh, one of the guys was a runner on the uh, floor and he goes, dude, the, I can get you a job so that you can have some money to pay everyone back. And it was totally, you know, pretty much luck, um, um, and I eventually went through a couple interviews and ended up uh, with a job as a commodity broker. But that's, uh, you know, another story, as they say. Does that mean you don't want to tell that story? Um, I will. Do we have enough time? I don't no, know. no, I'm just, I'm just kind of curious <laughs> about that. Um, so then you become a trader, a broker. Mm-hmm. 
broker is different than a trader. Yeah, I still don't know the difference, but yeah. Really? Okay, good, because I don't either. I had, I had my editor, uh, Bill Thomas, tell me the difference so I could write it in the book properly. <laughs> and then you worked your way up from there? Uh, correct, yeah, something like that. And I'm guessing there was... Work is a, work is a strong word to use. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I do want to get back to the um, proposal, but okay. first, um, was there something about that job that you really liked? Um, yeah, no, I mean, it was, uh, the, the thing that I liked about brokering is, uh, it was fast paced, no day was like any other. And, uh, you know, there was, you working with some colorful characters on the desk and, um, you know, that was, uh, it was, uh, it was a fun time. Just a f that's all you're going to say. It was a fun time. Um, well, I mean, there is a, okay. I mean, if you're going to push me, the, the one thing I, if you're going to try and go deeper, I, I'm going off script. I'm sorry. No, no, that's cool. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I should get down to, you know, why I wrote the book and, um, some stuff like that question actually. Oh, okay. Well, trying to relate it to, you know, how there was something about that job you found interesting. Oh, sure. Well, Obviously, I mean, character is, is certainly important for a writer. Well, when you're, um, when you're on the, when you're working in New York on the, as a broker, there's a lot of myths um, about people that have, you know, made a lot of money or lost a lot of money. Um, and I think this was sort of when I sort of, I was, I, I hadn't really written. I sort of given up on writing for a while after the MFA program because advertising takes the writing right out of you for sure. Um, you know, I had radio jingles in my head of, of Miller beer. Um, so I didn't really do a lot of writing, but no, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. There's this story of this, uh, he was this older, um, uh, pit trader. Um, and I, I think his name was Louis something, but he did what's called going for the brass ring. Um, basically you work for a company and you trade in the pits, um, but you're trading with other people's money. Well, at a certain point in your career, a lot of, uh, certain, uh, brave souls, uh, gamble or trade with their own money as it were and they become what's called locals and this guy was a local so he was trading with his own money and he was apparently doing very very well and he was a very respected options trader um, in the heating oil pit I think and apparently one day he came into the pit um, five minutes before the opening bell and one of the brokers looked to a buddy as he goes yo uh, what's up uh, Louis wearing pajama bottoms and I mean it sounds kind of funny but it was true he he had lost so much money all his own money and he kind of lost his mind and he uh, right at the bell sat on the edge of the pit in his pajama bottoms and cried and he was taken out apparently in a straitjacket this is a rumor myth but it was what sort of percolated the stories of wow there's some interesting characters maybe I should start writing again so that's kind of how um, you know, the, the, I think that was the first, I wrote a short story about that guy and that was published. And that was sort of the story that got me back into being like, now I'm a writer again, instead of just a drunk broker. But it was, um, it was kind of cool because right after, uh, right after that, I read this, um, book that you would think doesn't have a lot to do with trading. Um, it's called Death in the Afternoon by Ernest Hemingway, um, and it's about bullfighting. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember this one older uh, trader on the desk being like, 
had said to me, yeah, you see that guy over there? He lost a hundred million bucks, but he sucked it up, came back and he, he made 200 the next year. It's like, you know, you know, fighting off your back foot like that is really rare in this game. And it's an admirable thing. And I was reading this book about bullfighting at the same time. And Hemingway's talking about how, um, you know, all of these fancy young, uh, bullfighters come into Madrid and they, they give these really beautiful performances and they, they crush the bull with ballet, like grace and whatnot. And, um, and they're considered these great bullfighters for a time. And, and Hemingway goes on to say that the way you know the real deal from these uh, fake aficionados is um, at a certain point in a bullfighter's career, everyone gets gored near, near fatally. And it's after that first goring whether a, uh, a bullfighter can come back from it and sort of work as closely with the bull without fear. Now, granted, trading, it's, it's elevating it here, you know, to, because you don't die in trading and you just get fired. <laughs> but um, I think as my writer's mind just sort of put that together and it sort of put this sort of epic sense of like, huh, there might be the sense of, of uh, this is a larger than life thing if I can relate it to, you know, uh, you know Hemingway's stuff and, and work in some funny stories. I might have the workings of a novel. And I don't know, it took me like 10 years, but it eventually came out. Yeah. Interesting. There's the bullfighting ring, and, and then and then there's the pit. Right. And exactly. Sort of similar. Places. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I mean, one you die, and the other one you just it smells bad. But yeah, no. Well, I mean, you, you die a metaphorical death. Right. And especially right. in the novel, they, they, many of them have died metaphorical deaths. But what impressed me about these characters is that they always keep getting up and they just keep going at it. And um, I, that I that sort of Hemingway esque. There's court esque, and then there's you know Hemingway esque, but you know. Much better to be the yeah, latter. Of course. Uh, <laughs> th that idea of nobility in the face of total ruin, which I think is something that Hemingway wrote about in most of his work. W would you say that that was something you thought about when you were running short? Um, no, I thought mostly about Charles Bukowski. Uh, yeah. so. and it, which is about bums on Skid Row in L.A. And is that oh. noble? Um, no, and that's exactly why he really influenced my work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the characters in short are not noble? Um, no, they're thirsty. Thirsty, yeah. yeah. Would you say that Milt... Who, has anybody had a chance to read a book? Read the book? It, it just came out, so I, I know, yeah, I know there's right. one or two people. In I there. got an advanced copy, so I feel special. <laughs> um, the character of Milt, in some ways, I, I, wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't call him noble, except he, um, he's indestructible. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, I definitely would say he's noble because he's the one character in the book who's actually like, you know, he's fighting for his son, even though he might do things that are ignoble to get the money to send his son to private school because his son's getting, you know, beaten up where he's at because he's a sensitive little guy. Um, I think Milt is a character that I, I respect, yeah. Do you want to bring out the hat? Yeah, let's do it. All right, he's going to bring out the hat. Rudy, you want to share it? So uh, Milt is one of the characters in the book who, who kind of lasts throughout the book, um, and he wears a he wears a big old Stetson, which is called um, it's Spanish. What's the Spanish word? The El Jefe. The El Jefe. Uh, and the guy is like indestructible. He's sort of like Super Dave. You know, he, they find him in snowbanks. He gets thrown overboard when he's on a fishing trip. Uh, uh, don't don't ruin him. That's the part right, I'm going to read. I'm just going to say, just a, <laughs> bad things happen to him. But he's always he always gets up and he keeps fighting. Um, I, I, he was one of my favorite characters. There were many wonderful characters, but he was one of my favorites. Um, 
So, yeah, so there you go. Cool. All right, well, let Rudy take it. Rudy's going to give the uh, thematic introduction, and then I'll, I'll read a little bit. And then Are you we'll... going to sing a song? No, no, I'm just going to... Oh. <laughs> traders and brokers would emerge from the New York Mercantile Exchange like a herd of water buffalo, weary, staggering, and driven by thirst. The Admiral's Cup was the bar where the traders went to guzzle cheap beer and eat salted peanuts out of a huge oaken keg that sat in the corner. Nutshells littered the floor. Conversations at the cup tended to be loud, much louder than normal bar chatter. This was because many of the traders were hard of hearing from years of shouting in the pits. Partial deafness was not uncommon from constant exposure to extreme decibel levels that occurred daily in the rallying and falling markets. One man named Milk Harkrader spoke louder than anyone at the bar, but not because he was deaf. Milt wore a cowboy hat and had steel-toed wingtips. The hat was for after work, his unwinding hat, the essence of his tobacco-chewing Texas persona. The steel-toed wingtips were for work. If things got ugly around market opener clothes, the shoes were good for staking out his place in the trading pit. Shin wreckers, he called them. Milt, like many other 10-gallon hat-toting brokers in Manhattan, heralded from New Jersey. He needed the hat more than most because his hairline now began behind his ears. Milt had always been a loudmouth. Sometime after his divorce, he had to have his jaw wired shut, the outcome of a late-night brawl that occurred at a 7-Eleven in Rahway. This helped Milt develop a new respect for strangers, but he didn't stop him from talking so loud in bars. That's just a taste. Um, the next part I want to read is uh, Milt is um, on. I can take the hat off now. Um, can I wear it? Sure. <laughs> there you go. 
uh, Milt is um, on a fishing trip, and he doesn't really fish, but his client does. And you got to do these things when your client likes them. So uh, Milt is on a fishing boat with uh, his client Stan and his son. I was going to ask you to read this part. Oh, cool. I swear to God. Oh, sweet, dude. This. this is hilarious. Okay, I'm, I'm taking you right to where Stan's hooked a fish, the client. Jesus, cried Stan suddenly. The rod dipped down violently as if the line had gotten wrapped around the propeller. The reel spun like a top. The line made a whizzing sound like a bandsaw. Oh, crap, said the first mate. Want me to take it? Stan's hands trembled. He nodded. It got strong all of a sudden, crooned Stan, passing the rod. He's been playing possum. The first mate steadied the butt and the gimbal as he took the rod. Jumping into the chair, he harnessed himself in a whir of movement and began the wrestling match. Milt caught a glance of Stan's palms as he bent over in pain. They were raw with white puffy blisters forming at the thumb joint. It didn't get stronger, said the first mate, as the line hissed. We got something bigger on the line. I think a shark took the yellowfin. He looked at Milt. You want to try and reel it in? Chances are the line snaps. Milt grabbed the rod from the first mate with his white, soft hands, good for grasping donuts and egg sandwiches. (laughs) He'd have enough beers where the idea of defeating some massive creature was something that appealed to him. An idealistic notion like getting into a bar fight and winning. However, Milt's legs were cold and cramped up to the calves. Before getting in to prolong battle, Milt knew he'd have to stretch them. He'd unhooked his harness long before in one of his many runs to the beer cooler, as it made the life of the uh, as it as it made the light life jacket straps tug at his gut. Milt stood up in the chair. Don't was all Milt heard. The boat dipped. Milt wobbled for a moment, grasping the rod to his chest for counterbalance. Then, in an uncanny moment where bad luck, nature, and physics collide, Milt, attached to the fishing rod, went airborne like a missile. He was pulled with such force that he landed 20 yards away from the boat and hit the ocean with barely a splash. The first mate stood there, his mouth open. The captain, who looked over his shoulder just as Milt went under, heard what he thought was a fantail clap of water and assumed he'd missed the yellowfin breaching. The feeling of flying through the air, unbound, looking sideways at gigantic waves, was replaced quickly by the initial shock of hitting what felt like concrete. Submerged in a dark world, cold and muffled, with water rushing into his eyes, nose, and mouth, Milt felt some presence pulling him to some deep, unknown destination, colder, more desolate, and yet more peaceful. It was very cold, sleepy, and profound, like some hidden cosmos was revealing itself to Milt the Broker. He was hurtling downward whisked like someone chosen. Attached to the rod like a piece of bait, Milt was unaware that the real handle was hooked to the chest strap of his life preserver. (laughs) Dragged deeper and deeper, the force of the coursing water distorted his face, making it appear he was trembling. But in his own mind, Milt saw himself with a childlike smile, zooming through the depths to oblivion with a nonchalant peace that he would later mistake for courage. And the notion that he had stared the grim reaper in the face and had not blinked. His legs and arms flailed in a lucky moment. His hand knocked loose the real handle from the life vest, and Milt floated toward the surface, waves crashing above him. 
Um, I don't want to leave you guys in utter <laughs> curiosity, so I'm gonna, I gotta, I gotta finish the, the the scene, right? So let's skip a little bit forward. Uh, the boat bounded through the dark seas and approached Milt. When they got close enough, the captain timed a small wave, and Milt floated in on the back of it and almost crashed up against the side of the boat. The first mate braced the hooked end of the gaff under his shoulder and dipped the long handle into the ocean toward Milt, who floated nearby, yet each foot could have been a world away. Swim to it! Swim! He called out, knowing that the captain had once again killed the engine so Milt wouldn't get chopped up in the propeller. Milt, looking dazed, began to swim. He shot out his hands and grabbed the gaff just as another wave lifted him up on board the boat. The first mate caught the back of Milt's life jacket as he floated upward with the crest of the oncoming wave. Stan Crouch leaned halfway out of the boat and grabbed one of Milt's legs. Then, as if the sea vomited up something inevitable, Milt's body was lifted by the surging wave and spilled onto the deck. Milt's head gave out a crack as his skull hit the gunwale. The first mate looked up and saw Milt soaked through and pale, a translucent white, lolling on the deck with his sagging jowls quivering, and he thought of mollusk or squid flesh. The first person on top of Milt was his son. Milt coughing and sputtering, his lips blue, and his eyes red-rimmed from the sea, said, Hello. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for coming, or... No, we're not done yet. Oh, geez. No, I have like 30 more questions. Oh, my God. No, no, I, I just want to say that um, <laughs> despite all that, Milt's actually a good dad, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Father of the Year Award. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, I, I one final question, and then I, I'm going to open it up to, uh, to y'all. I should have the hat on when I say y'all, but I, oh, I yeah. took it off. So, um, what were you trying to convey about the world of trading when you, when you wrote short? Um... That it's a job like any other. I, no, I would I would say that uh, all I would just say about that is what I, uh, um, you know, is that I tried to make it like an Ian Fleming. Like what I would like to think of trade when a trader would read this, that they would be like a British Secret Service agent. What would they would think of Ian Fleming's James Bond? It's a over the top, larger than life, exotic locales um, with lots of poker gambling and 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 uh, insane villains. So that's that's it. That's it. That's it. Just a little bit extra- extrapolated. Exactly. And do you think of um, and this this sort of uh, I have to shout out Scott Sawyer who um, read some reviews on Amazon. Um, would you say short as a title is metaphorical in any way of, of how these characters deal with the world? Um, no, it has to do with uh, don't uh, get short while you're trading. Well, yeah, yeah, to, but I so. mean, you know, there, there, there's that, of course. But I mean, is there anything? Oh, uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you before. After three beers, I uh, lose the ability to talk metaphorically. So. <laughs> Well, that's a bummer. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Court. For Can I just give a quick shout out? I want to. You know, I want to. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank uh, Mike and Andrea. They, I, I came to Denver, and um, um, you know, I had. Uh, 
lost my job when I first got here and I was like, you know, backup plan was, you know, maybe work as a, a teacher. And I went into the interview with Andrea and, uh, that was like the last resort. Yeah. Well, no, but she took, <laughs> she took mercy on me and they were just very kind and took me in and let me teach and stuff. Um, and then I'd like to thank the three guys that I work with, uh, Bill Thomas, uh, Brad Nesba and Joe Fraley. They're, they're, uh, they've been great supportive team. Um, and then I'd like to thank, and I'll be mysterious about this. I'm not going to explain. I'm just going to, I'd like to thank the seven and that's on. Thank everyone for coming. Uh, I'll meet anyone over at the whiskey bar. Cause uh, my wife's out of town and uh, I'm ready to rock and roll. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.